well, I know everything is right in the world today um, because if you watch any kind of football, that was an incredible comeback by the Indianapolis Colts last night. It was so bad at halftime, I went outside and played in the snow with my kids, and then my wife will attest that I kept walking from outside. Um, Isaac was afraid I'd quit pushing him on the swing. But, but it was a great day to be a Colts fan. That has nothing to do with the sermon, but I had to say it anyway. Um, but we're glad you're here this morning, and, and we've been talking about what it looks like to be a it looks like to be a part of God's unique mission in the world. And so there's, there's uh, something I want to, to talk about, and we'll get to it. One of those things, this idea of being a missional people is interesting, and, and it, it happens in daily life, in the little things and the big things. And, and one of the things that I've noticed is, this may shock some of you, but I try to intentionally meet people who aren't a part of churches and missions, and, and whether it's at a coffee shop or at a, at a gym or whatever, I think that's, that's, that's a, something I'm, I try to be really intentional about. Because it'd be really easy for me to talk to only Christian people, but but one of the things that happens is that, that there's all you do for a living. Oh, I'm a pastor at a church. Oh yeah, okay. Um, that usually changes the conversation completely. And sometimes we kind of stop there, and they say, "Oh, it's nice meeting you," and, and they move on. But sometimes I ask questions because I'm really curious. You know, what would it take for you to become a part of a church or be, to really? Listen? And so I begin asking probing questions, and I and I kind of just just want to get to know them really. But but one of the questions I often ask is, you know, why if 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 you don't go, I'm just curious. It's not, and sometimes I've never been asked, and, and those are pretty, sometimes it's because, well, I've gone, and I just see a bunch of people say one thing, and they live totally different. I said, yeah, so have I. Um, aren't you, shouldn't you be defending people in church? I said, no, not when they don't need defending. Um, hopefully our lives reflect what we believe in and it moves the a story or hear a story about someone in their life. And you begin to know that they actually practice what they preach, and they, they change the world in some ways because of it. And so a few years ago, I read this book. Some of you may have heard of it, and some of you may have read it, called Same Kind of Different as Me. Um, it made the bestsellers list, like number 11, but, but Same Kind of Different as Me. And, and it was, you can't tell, that's really poor grammar. I'm not a great grammatical scholar, but I know that's bad. In fact, some of the letters were turned around like it was written by a child. But, but come to find out, the guy who wrote the title... Um, never had more than probably a third or fourth grade education, so that's why the title is Same Kind of Different as Me. And the story's about this guy named Denver, and Denver grew up in Louisiana, and he was a sharecropper, and he grew up in the, he was born in 1937, and he just passed away, I think, last year, but very, very dirt poor. African-American man who, who found himself um, on this vacation, and kind of ran away, and ended up finding himself in prison, and, and years from the talk, and he was homeless. The other side of the Ron Hall, who who Ron was all about himself, and in fact, he, he went, went to college, and he too grew up kind of poor, but, but uh, he, he grew up, and, and there was this, this thing where he went to college, and he left, and joined the army, and, and for Campbell's soup, take a feather duster, and go clean off all the cans in all the grocery stores. It's a real glamorous job. Um, and, and his wife was embarrassed because he had to carry the feather duster in his back pocket, so he decided he was going to find a different job. So he went back to school and got an MBA and, and, and found himself working at this bank as a broker. And as he happened to be going to buy some stuff for the bank, and, and he passed this art man in Dallas, and he walked in this art gallery, and he noticed that there was this painting he just thought was so great, this oil painting, and so he bought it. Problem is, he didn't have any money to buy it. So he, get, he, he promised his wife's 50 shares of Ford Motor Company to the art, art. Well, those were a gift from her father when they got married. So you can see where the story's going. It's going to be a bad idea. Well, sure enough, she says, you're going to sell that painting. And so actually, he made $2,000 on it in 1978, which was a big deal. And so all of a sudden, he figured out, you know, there's a lot of money to be made in art. So he started 
selling art on the side, eventually did it full-time, and eventually became very, very wealthy. But in the midst of this, as he's seeking after this career and financially, his wife found herself seeking more and more about being a part of a church and, and found herself there a lot. And so she would drag him there, and he would go because he wanted to be there. But over time, she found herself drawn to the poor and the oppressed. So as they gained more wealth and, and financial income, she found herself drawn to places where that wasn't the case, and she began working at this rescue mission in the slums of Dallas. And rescue mission, and her husband finally says, you know what, um, one, I don't like that you're driving your car there because that's a really nice car to be driving in that neighborhood. I don't think that's really safe. And, and two, I don't think you should be going there. And she said, well, honey, I'm going to keep it me if you want. So he thought, well, fine. I love my wife. I'm going. So he went. He didn't really want to be there, and the people there knew he didn't want to be there, but he went anyway. But, but Debbie, his wife, was known as Miss Debbie throughout the rescue mission, and she, she had been praying for these men in, who were in this rescue home. And, and there's this one guy, Denver, who she kept seeing, and God kept saying, you need to keep loving Denver. Just keep loving Denver. So she did. She just kept loving on Denver. And so Miss Debbie began to invite Denver over to their home, and her husband was very concerned about that and all these things. And, and Denver kept coming over and, and kept being involved in a lot. You know, the, the husband kind of warmed up because God was working in Denver's heart and working in Ron's heart at the same time. And as God departs, Debbie developed cancer. I'm sorry if I'm rooting the book for you. It's still really good. You can still read it. But Debbie died. And here were these two ugly people, a sharecropper, a guy who grew up dirt poor, homeless, and a really wealthy guy. We have black and white. We have all the things that, that you say, well, these things don't fit. But there was something God had been doing in them, and so this friendship developed. And in fact, um, he became like a son of their kids. And it was just an incredible story God continues to do and how he uses people. Because Debbie heard his thing, go, go. And so she went, and she was faithful to God's call. And that's this morning um, what we're looking at in Luke chapter 10. Uh, Luke chapter 10, and we'll begin with verse 1. And I'm sorry if you look I changed the, the, the passage on Tuesday. It'll happen about twice a year. Uh, and so I generally didn't have a reprint. But Luke chapter 10, I'll ask if you stand as we read this this morning. From Luke chapter 10. After he appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Go. I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandal to anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves the wages. Do not trust a house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat, heal the sick who are there and tell them, The kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcome, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that sticks to your feet, we wipe off. Yet be sure of this. The kingdom of God is near. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. We find in this passage Jesus' teachings here and, and what to do and how to do it and how to reach new people. To look back at Jesus had just fed 5,000 incredible things. He was healing people. And yet he ends chapter 9 by talking about the fact that he's going to be persecuted and die. And so we go from these great, incredible stuff to this story where he sends out these people and, and he sends them out. And, and we need to stop for a second because he sent them out. There were 72 of them. And this is a, this is a significant reason. One is that 72 at this time was all the nations of the world. 
that there are to be 72 disciples. And so if that's true, what Jesus is saying here is this, that I'm sending you out to all people, in all nations, in all places, because I'm not discriminating. I want you to reach out to everyone. And 72 is interesting because I don't know how much you know about this world, but numbers mattered a lot to them. And it was really one of the predominant numbers throughout Jewish history, and even throughout the scriptures. There were 12 tribes in the nation of Israel. There were 12 apostles, and, and so on. But 12 represents the complete church, or the fullness of the church. And so here we see that 72 is a, is a, we can, 72 divided by 6 is 12, or 6 times 12 is 72. So another way for them would have understood that, listen, in the midst of this, that God is doing unique people with people into all the world. So here Jesus is sending these people out, and he says, go. And, and, and the words he gives next are not all that encouraging. He says, you will be like lambs among wolves. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't really like if I'm around a bunch of wolves. That one that should inspire, you know, this great, whoo, I mean, that's what he tells them. You will be lamb among wolves. Maybe this is where sometimes I think we probably struggle because we don't have wolves. We'd rather be a wolf among wolves or a lion among wolves, or we'd rather be whatever animal will beat the wolves. I mean, you know, that, that's the picture we like, but in fact, Jesus says you would be a lamb. And this picture for us is pretty incredible because what they wouldn't have understood as he said this, but which we get now and which Luke would have been, is that Jesus was the lamb of God who was eventually led to slaughter among a bunch of wolves. In other words, Jesus is saying to us, and this isn't really, you know, if, we were, if I were to go to some church growth seminar, they'd say, don't really say anything about this. But, but what he's saying is, listen, if you choose to follow me, you're going to be persecuted. In fact, you might even be killed. But what he's saying to you is, listen, I promise it's worth it because the message is the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is here. Be a lamb among the wolves. And he began this whole passage by saying this, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And this is why I mentioned earlier, I talk to people outside the church, and sometimes this is really what they're saying. They're saying there are lots of people that say things like they want to be involved, but there are very few people that really... Because the challenge for us is how do we say yes to Jesus? How do we say yes to his call to go? How do we say yes to I'll be a part of a missional people? I'll be a part of God's mission in the world. How do we do that? What does that look like for us? How do we begin to live a life that reflects that? And this is the challenge. So what we talked about last week, how, how do we live as, as a missional people in our homes? How do we disciple our kids through model lives that they, they see and then they want to emulate because of the difference we've made? I was talking to someone from church and they said, you know, I, it was really good, but I wish you had said, you do that. We should give an example of what it looks like for us to do that. And so that's been on my mind all week is what does it look like then for us to be a missional people? If Jesus is sending out the 72, in other words, if he's sending out all his church and all his people in the world, what does, it look like? what does it look like to be faithful to that call? And we talked last week about how we just model it in our homes by letting us read scripture or spending time in prayer. We talked about that those are important things, but one of, one of the things for us sometimes is for our kids or our grandkids to see what we do with our lives. Because how we spend our time and our energy reflects what we value. And so I was thinking this week about what it looks like for us to be a missional people, to be God-sent people at, at, at school, where we intentionally live certain kinds of ways. And so I, I started thinking about a couple stories I wanted to share with you. And one is of a guy named Luke Thomas, who, who this was when he was a teenager. Luke is from New Brunswick, Canada, Toronto. And Luke grew up in a, in a grew up, you know, next door to the church, probably much like my kids will. 
But he grew up in this, this parsonage, and he went to this Wesleyan church where his dad was the pastor, and they had a, a high school there, a, a decent-sized high school, but not a big high school. And so Luke was kind of like the star school. He played on the basketball team, and was the best basketball player, and, and you know he was the guy all the guys were going to be like, and all the girls liked, and all those kinds of things. But Luke, after his freshman year, he comes to his mom and dad, and he says, hey, uh, I want you to know I'm, I'm going to high school, the public high school there, which has about 3,500 students. And his dad looks at him and says, Luke, why in the winter? I mean, you've got everything going for you at school. Why would you want to leave? Why, why would you? Frankly, I, I hear so many bad things about New Brunswick High School. I, I don't really want you to go to school there. I, I just think there's some bad things there, and I don't want you to get involved in that. And he looked at his dad and said, Dad, aren't you the one telling us every week that we need to, to be Jesus? Isn't that what you tell us all the time? Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. And he said, well, Dad, that's what I'm, I need to do. He goes, son, don't really listen to me. I'm not really wanting to actually do what I'm saying. You know, I mean, but, but he says, he didn't actually say that. He probably thought it. But he said, okay, if you're convinced this is God's calling for you, then go to school there. So Luke does. He transfers at the beginning of his sophomore year, and he, he tries out for the basketball team. He makes the basketball team. But every day because of school, he was made fun of every single day. As a parent, I can't imagine that. But Luke would come home more nights than not in tears because of how the day went at school. But Luke began praying that God would open up doors for him to have this Bible study at the school. And so he began praying all the time. And in fact, he, he began inviting people from church to have and, and it started really small. A couple of them would meet all through his sophomore year, just a couple of them. And, and, and it happened. And at the end of his sophomore year, his parents said, you, should, you want to transfer? I don't. I'm, I'm still going to go to school there. God has something for me there. And he kept going to school there. And, and the next year, he went from the team to being a starter and one of the top all-area players. And, and yet, in the midst of that, Bible said it was slowly growing. He was still getting made fun of him. Life was still, it wasn't what all he had hoped it would be. He began to see some chinks in that, and by the middle of his junior year, life was getting better. It still wasn't perfect, but he kept praying, and he kept praying, and he kept praying that God would use him to reach more people. Fast forward to his senior year. At the beginning of his senior year, he starts getting phone calls from kids all over the Toronto metropolitan area saying, hey, uh, what do you think I should do about this? Can you pray for me? Kids that didn't go to a school calls from people he'd never heard of or never met about this Luke Thomas kid, this kid from New Brunswick High School that, that played basketball, but he was so adamant about it. Maybe guys from other teams called because they watched how he played and the way he interacted and the way he, he lived his life, and even though they didn't necessarily want to be like that, they knew there was something special about him. Fast forward to Luke, the end of his senior year, at this point there's about 150 or 200 people gathering a couple days a week at this Bible study, this teenager's leading at a school. School that was known for all kinds of chaos and brokenness had kind of been turned around because the culture of this place had changed because of one kid's faithfulness. In fact, the school administration, a public high school, invited his band to come play at the graduation. It's an incredible story of what God can do when he says, go, be my missional people, be my people who are part of my mission in this world. And so this high school is turned upside down by this teenager who is faithful to God's call to not be stuck in a comfort zone of his life, but to go where God is calling him to a unique place. See, that's great for our students. That's good news for them. They know that they can be faithful in, in, in public areas and God can use them, and that's cool, but, but I, I go to work every day. So what do I do about that? And I, I don't say this because he's a family member of mine, but I'm, they're very, I shouldn't say, really, really, and, and my uncle is a, is a guy who's been really successful. He's one of the youngest vice presidents for United Healthcare, a Fortune Top 10 company or whatever they are, and, and yet in the midst of that, I, I know a couple years ago, he invited me down to be a part of a, a golf fundraiser he threw, and I didn't think much about that. Lots of people do that, but, but the cool thing was the money that was raised went for this project for people from work to go on this mission trip. And you say, well, that's cool. People go on mission trips all the time. 
was a mission trip with 25 people, and only five of them claim to know Jesus in church in any kind of way, shape, or form. And 20 of them have nothing to do with church and aren't really sure they want to, but they thought it would be good, and they probably felt guilty and asked them. They spent their own Mondays, and they went, uh, I believe it's to Guatemala, to do mission work. So they worked at this orphanage, and these 25 people gathered around, and each night they got around this open fire in this like orphanage area, and such camp for adults. People were confessing and telling all kinds of stories that we had never heard in the office. And so every year since then, he takes a group of people on a mission trip, and most of them on these trips don't know who Jesus is, and they're going for Christian mission trips. Because when you live a life that looks like to be a missional purpose, missional person, people are drawn to that. It gives a sense of purpose to life. The challenge for us is, are we living lives that reflect that in the work? Matt Suley is a friend of mine, and he's, he moved to college together, and after college, he went to Pasadena to go to Fulbury, and just outside St. Louis, and in this pretty nice neighborhood. And he was a youth pastor there, and he found himself just not feeling content. It needed to be worth something more. And so, so Matt decided that he was from Flint, Michigan. And you hear all the horror stories about Flint, and he decided some of them are true and some of them just aren't. But he said, I'm tired of hearing them. So Flint started an organization called and forged Flint with the homes and neighborhoods. And, and homes that no one lives in, they, they board up the windows so it doesn't look quite so bad and it's a little bit better. And they go into homes where people are willing to stay in those broken down areas, and they repair those homes. They're ultimately hoping to repair lives in the midst of that, but they repair homes. That's what they do. And so he, he typically uses students. And in fact, um, we as a church this summer, and end of August, or beginning of August, and so I'll really more out if you want to be a part of that. But here's seeing brokenness in an area and said, you know what, it doesn't have to be that way. So he dedicated his life and moved his, his wife, and they moved back to Flint, Michigan, where everyone's a little way, and moved back, where he could be a part of God, <coughs> where he could be a part of God's unique mission in the world. And I could tell you story and story again of people like that. We then left with, oh, those are great things, but what about us here? And, and one of the things we've even tried to do here is, I have some pictures that we'll show on the screen um, for Go. This is just a group of the people from our church who worked in the rescue mission a few weeks ago. Um, I guess I can point out I'm the one drinking coffee, so apparently I worked really hard. But but even even Anna played the violin for guys as they gathered around in the men's rescue shelter, and, and, and it was a good time. And, and you know what? And that's a great thing. But I have to tell you this. If we show up one time and again in two weeks, and that's all we do, it's almost wasted. See, if it doesn't become a pattern of life for us, it's great to give an afternoon, and that's a good thing, and it's great to give money to things, and that's a, those are really good things, and those are really important because because you didn't know we can't leave the lights on here, even though it may not seem like it was on this morning, it was. You know, we, if people aren't generous. The other side of it is that if we just show up occasionally and enough, and it doesn't become a way of life for us, we'll figure out how we can partner with the rescue mission on a regular basis. If that doesn't become a way of life for us, then it's almost as if it doesn't matter in some ways. As emotional people, if we're not intentional with our real continually reaching out, then we can't be God's unique people, unique work. And it's just not possible. But if God is with us, then we can dream even bigger dreams than this. And I have to tell you, I read an article this week that was talking about how um, it was this, this late and it was, he was been really successful in and so one of them, hey, so where does the church screw up all the time? Because, you know, you things are probably really productive all the time, and, you know, you're really successful. What, where do, I mean, I'm assuming our meetings are, are boring and all kinds of other things. What, what can we do better? And he said, I have to tell you, the one thing I, I wish church leaders did better. If there was one thing I could pick, not, you know, you're thinking, and the guy interviewing him was thinking, like, structures, I would say, and this or that. And he says, if there was one thing I could tell them, dream bigger. 
bigger. As I read that this week, I was thinking about us and thinking, do we dream big enough? Do we dream big enough for our families? Do we dream big enough for our church? Do we dream big enough for our community? You know, we see brokenness here in the Muskegon community, and yet sometimes go, oh, that's too bad. But do we dream big enough that God can use us in our lives to redeem that brokenness that we see? Do we dream big enough? Are our dreams big enough? Or are they just too small? But my hope is that together our dreams become bigger and God uses us to do unique things, but it will only happen if we become his unique people who are sent out in the communities we live in, in the places we go to school, become a missional people. Recognize that God sends us out. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Send us to be lambs among wolves. And those are not great pictures, but it is the reality. And maybe if we begin to live like that, then things like Forge Flint and things like Luke Thomas in New Brunswick, Canada, our story. Maybe then on Sunday morning, I'm telling the stories of our people. Maybe some of you, I need to know your story because they're more like those stories I've been sharing. If we begin to dream bigger, then God begins to use us to turn our homes. The challenge for us today is this, to, to be a missional people, but to dream bigger. In a few moments, we take communion and we... We take these elements that, that this morning. It's crazy to think about a Jewish carpenter who really didn't have much acclaim in his day. We gathered to celebrate his death. Started really with 12 people. An incredible, incredible story. But when people begin to dream about what God can do, God begins to use them and transform the world. Father, help us this day as communion. Help us to know what it looks like to people. And as we take these elements and, and as we as we remember what your son did for us, will you help us to go to be your unique people? Mm-hmm.